netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. Today, Mike Seymour is going to talk with Matt Madden, Vice President of Production and Development and Performance Capture Supervisor at Giant Studios. Mike and Matt will talk about Tintin as well as Real Steel and Avatar, and also get into a lot of questions you likely have about mocap, capturing data, scaling data, how do actors feel working within this technology? It's the kind of in-depth discussion about this kind of thing that I think you'll really enjoy. Before we get to that, I wanted to mention the January term has started over at our sister site, the training site, fxphd.com. We use the head of these podcasts a few times a year just to tell you what's new over at FXPHD, and this time I wanted to share with you kind of a personal experience with FXPHD as a student. I'm a flame guy. I even taught flame courses on FXPHD, but I like to keep current with stuff and what other packages are doing. And as time goes on, we've covered trade shows for FX Guide, and I've, I've sat through some really great nuke breakdowns. In my current job, I've dabbled in nuke and always found it intriguing, and I was recently asked to do a job on nuke to fill a hole in the schedule. So I spent the holidays watching FXPHD classes on my laptop and on my iPad while flying. Now, I know how good our training is, and I've taken classes on all sorts of things from FXPHD outside my area, but this was actually taking a class for a specific need. And for me, so many of the tools in Nuke are so familiar that if you're familiar with one package, taking classes in a similar package is really a cool idea because you really can understand how these tools apply in this other tool, um, and, and we just never really have time to spend learning those other tools. And the other thing is, Nuke's available to FXPHD students on the VPN. So not only could I follow along, but I could redo examples or test things to make sure I understood how that tool worked. So not only do we offer those basic kind of classes, but there's also project-style classes that make you think about issues that come up under real job conditions. Anyway, that's just my admittedly biased endorsement. What am I looking forward to in this new term? Well, one of those is exactly that, a project-based course on Nuke. And it's working with a Joan of Arc project that we're doing that's going to factor into other classes. So dealing with real-world things come up during a project, um, and in this class, they're even going to branch a bit into Maya. So like if it's a com- as a compositor in Nuke, if a 3D element was missing, like a matte pass or a, a shadow pass or something that you needed, uh, giving you just enough taste of Nuke in this class to be able to open up that scene in Maya and create those passes yourself. Uh, that should be pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that one. The other one I'm really looking forward to is Mike Seymour's Background Fundamentals course, subtitled Curiously Engaging. The title alone makes me curious, but I've I've spent some time with Mike talking about some of the concepts that he's thinking about for this class, things like behavioral economics, and I think you'll be blown away by some of the new ways people are thinking about using new media and and, uh, just real scientific philosophies and different ways of thinking about things to break out and be noticed. It's it's kind of a... uh, one of the kind of classes I really love at FXPHD, where it's just kind of outside the box, but it really applies to everything we do. And in, in addition, there's a couple of new Cinema 4D classes. Uh, the legendary Charles Poynton is doing a 300-level camera tech and color science class that ought to be outstanding. Houdini, Maya, lots of 3D classes this term. Uh, PF Track, Typography and Title Design, 3D Environments, the Tools of Roto and Paint. There's 40 courses being offered this term, and I think 12 of those are new. And... This term, we've added a new option that one of your classes can be from the vault. So we've added another 33 courses. So for the $359 U.S. that you pay for one term at FXPHD, you choose three classes. And in the past, those all had to be from the new offers. And then you could additionally buy a class for an added fee from the vault. Well, what we've decided to try this term is... You can take over your three classes. You can pick one of those from our vault classes. So these might be something that you missed in a previous term, 
or something that might apply more directly to something you're doing right now that was not an offer in our current classes. So anyway, footage for your reel, top-notch professors. Head on over to fxphd.com. There's a video outlining the new classes as well as a lot of stuff to read on the site detailing what's in each class. So now on to the interview done by Mike Seymour with Matt Madden from Giant Studios. Can I just start by commenting? You, you've you had a run that's pretty much a dream run since the company formed in 99. By say that, that you seem to be progressively working on more and more films to a point that you have become the go-to company for performance capture without a doubt. I mean, you really are standing fairly alone. What, what is it that you think separates Giant from basically anywhere else? And also, why, why a specialist company? Why is this technology not something that you know, is inherently at each of the major facilities, the visual effects houses. You, you guys are just sort of really carved out a great niche here. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thank you for that. Um, I, I think one of the major reasons is because this process was really built on some really, really robust code for solving skeletal motion. And with that foundation, we were, we've were we been able to build on that over the last uh, 10 or 12 years or so with improving uh, the tracking that is associated with the solving and then retargeting onto characters and then the production tools that come with uh, a live shoot. And so each piece kind of built on the other and we knew that while we had the guts of something back in in the late 90s, early 2000s, it, it wasn't really a fully fledged production tool yet. And we were fortunate that in the early 2000s that the advancements of computer graphics rendering and uh, the affordability of it really came to fruition you know, about 10 years ago and you didn't need a $50,000 machine to render decent graphics in real time. And so when that came about, we, were, we knew that we could leverage that and in addition to the advancements that the, the, the gamers had brought to it with their real-time rendering, leveraging the work that they've done in the industry, we were really excited about how this process could continue to evolve. And so our goal has been to, to really take advantage of other advancements in the industry to help bring a better product to the stage. But it's really all founded on this core tracking and solving technology. Without that, we, we couldn't go live, as we say. It would be uh, what's typically referred to as a blind capture, where you capture the performance and then process it all and play it back later. So the ability to go live with performance and basically bring this virtual world to life is really what it's all founded on. And so our goal, of course, has been to improve on that naturally because the production demands are always uh, outreaching the capabilities, and which isn't a bad thing. But uh, we always need to do more people or, or uh, more props or bring in more effects. Or now, now lighting's coming into play too. So, so it's very exciting it, that it's a constantly uh, evolving process, and uh, we're able to bring more to the stage, much like a live action experience. Only. Uh, the majority of it, at least, is, is virtual. So I was wondering if we could just discuss the process a bit before we get into specific productions. Um, and I thought, uh, I don't know if you think this is a, uh, an adequate breakdown, but given that you tend to work often with other visual effects companies and hand over material, uh, and clearly you're working inside a production, it seemed to me that the, that the central three areas of Giant's expertise are the actual camera capture stage, 
the solving and the feedback to people, as you say, so it's not a blind uh, capture, and then the retargeting, in other words, solving the problem that the people that you are capturing don't necessarily have the same dimensions as the characters that they are inhabiting. Is that a, is that a fair three-way breakdown? I think it's fair. Those are, those are certainly three key components for sure. Have I missed one? Um, in addition to that, there uh, basically we have to be able to capture anything that uh, a production requests that, that's feasible. You know, for example, you could throw in some sophisticated props, uh, integrating set pieces, and really, you mentioned those three uh, phases. It's also about being able to capture them in a production environment where you have uh, crew out there, you have grips, stunt support, cameramen, set pieces, all crowded around the actors or wherever they need to be on the set, which, of course, can block a lot of these markers. So that puts technical demands naturally on the tracking and solving process, particularly for the real-time display. So that's really part of what you're calling the core piece or the three pieces. It's really two of those three pieces in the, the camera and tracking and then also the, the solving of the motion. But it's really about that resiliency or robustness to be able to do that in different conditions that also helps us stand out. Because if you go to a demo or a trade show, you'll see lots of folks demonstrating motion capture. And they can do it when an actor's out there or a model waving their arms about and showing off a nice real-time demo. But if you ask them to get into a fight scene and throw up set pieces and have the rest of the crew out there and have you know a very short amount of time between set changes, that's really where rubber hits the road and you can identify something as a, as a real production tool or not. Well, in fact, you guys have really pioneered that idea of taking the capture volume and making it not a cube stage perfect lighting environment uh, in films like Real Steel and Rise of the Planet of the Apes, haven't you? Yeah, you know, the, the whole uh, idea of just saturating with cameras, it's, it's good to a point, but really what we try to do is, and it's, it's really about how technology evolves um, in other areas, is I think the best tech is when you don't even realize it's there, and this is no different. I mean, if if our process is so in your face that it really impedes the the creative process of the director and the performers and the rest of the crew, then then that really is a detriment. And what we try to do, and it's a, a continued goal we have, is to become more invisible to that and, and make it more like a live action shoot, so that. What we do is, you know it exists, but it's, it's really transparent in the creative process. So the less we can interfere with that, with doing more tricks with camera tracking and, and being more robust and, and, and having an ability to deal with changes in, in lighting and color, uh, the more successful I think the project will be and the more resilient the process and the more flexible we can be as well. So let's discuss the first of those, the camera capture stage so just in without getting into anything and i know of course you've won the uh the technical achievement award of the oscars in 2005 for the development of this stuff but is it uh, the camera system i believe like you could have up to what 80 cameras and it's an optical based system can you just talk about how it works yeah you can have anywhere from 20 to 120 cameras it's really about the uh the size of the space you're trying to cover so um it's funny, in the early days of Lord of the Rings, just kind of going back a few years, I think this was 
this was 98, just early cast days. I think we had six cameras down there. And, you know, <laughs> it wasn't fancy by any stretch, but it, but it did the job just for the initial tests we were doing for some of the massive crowd scenes and just proof of concept, you know, for the early Elv and, and Urukai test uh, for these motion trees. But obviously we've, we've come quite a way since then. I think the peak of Avatar, we were, we were just over 120 cameras. But again, it's it's really about defining the area you need to cover uh, for performance and constructing a, what we call a zone. So if you think of like a a uh, we typically use twelve foot zones, but they they don't have to be. But just for simplicity, you could say a thirty by fifty foot zone. So you'd have ten by ten foot cubes. You think of it that way, and so we we have a certain number of cameras designated to each cube or each zone. And if you need to expand that, and let's say you have a, a horse running through the middle and you need a longer stretch of run, we could extend those zones or cubes beyond that base volume if there's physical space there. So there's really uh, hasn't been a, a technical limitation to the size of the space or number of cameras. It's more about practical limitation. Does it make sense to have something that big and, and pay for that size of space if you're not using it? And so that's really how we've set up these stages for productions. The, um, the space that you set up for Rise of Planet of the Apes um, was an exterior space, which, if you've got optical cameras, must introduce a lot of issues to do with reflective surfaces and lighting and just high con. I mean, the lighting conditions of an exterior setup is just nowhere near as controlled as that of a studio. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, actually, Weta did uh, the physical capture for Apes. We just uh, contributed the software and support. Okay. Uh, we did we did similar uh, work on uh, I Am Legend. Yep. And uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and then more recently, Real Steel. We were on set dealing with all kinds of different lighting conditions, and so there are a variety of ways to deal with that. Uh, one being use a specific band of IR light that your cameras are designed to look at exclusively. So essentially you're filtering out everything else but that band of light. So it gives you a way to threshold at least the majority of the other light sources in the set. And then from that point on, it's much like the traditional capture where you're tracking those points and then solving them to a skeleton. Um, the, the trick there, is, of course, is the setup and the calibration. You have very little time on the day on a live set to set up and, and get calibrated and begin the 3D tracking and solving process. So uh, if you can't do it in a relatively small window, then chances are they're not going to incorporate that into at least a first unit production schedule. Uh, another way to do it where the tracking and solving doesn't have to be uh, displayed on the day, it could be displayed after the fact is a process that we call IBC, which is just an acronym for image-based capture. But essentially what we do is take uh, a series of HD cameras that we that are synchronized and set those up around the stage. And we can use anywhere from two to maybe 10 or so, again, depending on the volume size and how much coverage we need through a given shot. But the whole premise of that is to be very gorilla-like, where you don't know where you need to set up until minutes before the shoot and so you're more like a first unit you find out what up what's up next uh your crew scrambles sets up the cameras and you kind of hide in the background when we're rolling 
and we have a process to do a, a simultaneous record of all the cameras uh, to a series of hard drives. So in that case, uh, for example, in Real Steel, we did all of the fight work up front because it made sense to uh, choreograph that for the, the director and the editor and everyone else to understand what shots were actually going to be played back on set. But there are other cases where uh, Sean Levy, the director, wanted to have more interactivity between the actors, like Hugh Jackman and the robots, in which case it didn't make sense to pre-record those and play those back. He wanted to do those in the moment on set. So quite often we would have the robots on stilts. And in those cases, they really weren't moving around a lot anyway, so the stilts worked out okay. So that way the actor could respond to uh, Max or Charlie characters uh, interactively, just like they were live actors, and they could be directed as live actors. So in that event, we waited until we had a cut from editorial and then processed the color imagery that we had recorded on our HD cameras in addition to the actual hero plate, and we used that essentially as our last capture camera because that's ultimately what we composite to in the frame in the case of Real Steel where the robot's replacing the actor on the stilts. So... So basically, you have two methods, the, the color method, which currently is not real-time, and then the IR method, which you can set up to be live, just like it were on a capture stage. So as you're no, no doubt aware, when somebody does a making of or whatever, there's um, a real tendency to show a skeleton animation figure acting out with, in the background, somebody on a motion capture stage. And the the implicit comment that's passed often in these kind of slightly overviews of visual effects work is, oh, well, the motion capture device shows you where all the joints are of all the characters, and therefore you've got the animation of the characters. The trouble is, of course, anyone knows anything about anything will know that all you're capturing from the cameras is effectively a point cloud of the surface properties of that's right. the things that have inside them the bones that have the joints. <laughs> and You um, got it. I wanted to discuss that with you because it seems to me that that is um, the real point at which uh, you separate yourselves uh, tremendously because not only are you solving the problem of deriving the underlying skeleton movement from the point cloud of the surface, but you're doing it in an environment that allows you to not do a blind recording, which doesn't give you a lot of compute time or certainly cycles to get stuff happening. In an environment, as I said, where you might have a serious signal-to-noise problem just caused by the reflectivity or the, the occlusion or just the nature of propping that happens on a set. Can you discuss this? Because this is the bit that I, I, don't, I don't think we hear enough about that I think you guys deserve real credit for. No, I appreciate that because you're right. That really is a, a key issue in all of this. Um, so, one, again, uh, going back to one of your original questions, and it, it goes back to this, this foundation of integrating in the tracking and solving and having a system that really can do more with less. And so what we spend a good bit of time doing in our system setup is, is telling the software everything we can about the actor that's being captured. Uh, of course, bone lengths, uh, range of motion, uh, anything about their movements that will... Uh, give us more information about how those markers are moving relative to their skeleton, we try to incorporate into the final solve. And so I mentioned markers moving. We know that markers move on the surface of the skin, or especially on the mark, the surface of the uh, capture suit and, and uh, around the arms in particular and, and the elbows and knees and the hips, et cetera. 
So naturally, we try to put the markers in places that don't move, but that's not always uh, a reality. So we try to recognize that in the software so that if it does move uh, relative to the joints, the system's smart enough to recognize that and, and allows that to happen without affecting the accuracy of the underlying skeletal cell. Uh, likewise, when the markers are missing, which happens quite a bit, uh, it relies on surrounding markers and the information that it has about how a skeleton can move uh, to give a stable solution uh, in that moment. Now, afterwards, we have the luxury, of course, of post-processing and leveraging information about the entire shot. So if there is a section that has sparse data, let's say, we can actually look at the data from areas where where there was more information and help use that to educate what might have been happening during the area where there was limited information. And it's also, rather than keyframe or hand edit any of the motion, you know, you hear in the, in the capture uh, industry, you hear marker cleanup and this type of thing. And that, that can get pretty scary because if you start manipulating marker cloud data, then from the beginning, you're solving to smooth information. And we, we try not to do that because if someone has any type of frenetic movement, we want to make sure that we keep that as much as possible because right away you'll start to notice a difference in the subtleties of the motion if you oversmooth any of that raw data. So we're very sensitive to that, not to attenuate that and make sure that uh, anything that the person can could have done physically is maintained in the motion. Right. So that, that's the key, it, though, isn't it? Because it's almost like a predictive model because what you're saying is rather yes. than go through and say, okay, there's a sharp movement here, because there's a sharp movement, I'm going to run a filter on it and that low-pass filter is going to take out the sharp movement and I'm going to end up with something that's not offensive, it doesn't have any flicker, but by the same token has, has minimized the performance. You're saying I can predictively tell you that an arm can't move from here to here so the data may indicate that it moves from here to here, but that would break three bones and pass through an object, so it doesn't, That's versus, right. versus filtering. And likewise, if, if the arm can move there uh, to that point because it's undergone some type of impact or jarring, we certainly want to maintain that. And so we won't blindly smooth through that data if the physical structure is suggesting that that's what's happening. So if you don't uh, acknowledge especially that ballistic or frenetic movement in your processing, uh, there's a good chance that can be lost. And that's, you tend to see a good bit of that uh, with capture motion and also without acknowledging the, the relative movement of the markers to the underlying surface and bones. And the result quite often is more of a puppet look which in some cases is fine, in other cases not as desirable. Because that's the other thing, isn't it? Because if all your actors were pretty much virtually naked and had like 1% body fat and were super ripped, then you might give some chance that the, that the actual patch that you're tracking on the surface isn't sliding. But as everybody, mm-hmm. as everybody probably isn't semi-naked and, and ripped with 1% body fat, they're going to have both <laughs> clothing and actual, uh, well, for want of a better term, fat that is going to allow kind of a jiggling. And there's nothing wrong with that. But of course... The jiggling on my bicep doesn't indicate that anything's happening to the arm underneath. It just indicates that there's a momentum or a secondary kind of momentum on the top surface of whatever right. the marker is attached to. So you're right. going to have to right. somehow deal with that, which is 
or is it exactly? And so these are different settings and parameters that a TD can input based on that individual. So when we do a range of motion, we can analyze that and and really get a better understanding of the marker movement through that through a full range of motion on each person. Right. Okay. So. So you've, you, you are very highly calibrated in terms of the space, but also highly calibrated in terms of the system's predictive understanding of the individual that's in the suit. Like if I'm in the suit and I'm not super fit and ripped, which I'm not, then I'm, I'm not going to have the same settings that, uh, that an athlete might have or a dancer. Is that's that right? right. Right. That's right. And likewise, that helps establish essentially this, this fingerprint, if you will, for tracking as well, because it, it, it's analyzed how much you can move in space so it knows how those markers are all moving relative to each other. And so this, it has this, this 3D pattern that, that it establishes for you specifically. And so this also has a different dimension if you start getting into face tracking, I presume, because here we have both the um, fluidity of skin in terms of what we just talked about is like jiggle but also we just have like a lot of elasticity of of the face that's right and that's that is extremely subjective uh not only for each actor of course but then you when you apply it to the character uh the more of a difference you have there the more you may need to modify the performance relative to that character to get the correct look so can we discuss retargeting? Because these characters that you've dealt with over time, um, and some obvious ones are when you're using primates or, or things like that, but you know, there are obviously tons of creatures that are not of the same dimensions or even weight mm. and size, as in the case of robots, um, as humans. Um, what are some of the issues in retargeting? Because we know that when you take a, a child and compare it to an adult, that it's not mm-hmm. just that everything got bigger, <laughs> it's that the limbs changed right. in proportional length. Right. It's, it's the length and the mass distribution, too. That's the thing that, that really goes unnoticed sometimes is we can all see a skeleton change bone length, but quite often uh, we forget that there's a significant difference in distribution of mass, and that's reflected in how they move and in the inertia of a body, and that's why kids can just, you know, take off like little water bugs, you know, because they don't have that inertia. And most adults, it takes a little while, to, you know, to get up to speed. Uh, and so those subtleties really are visual cues for us uh, as to the body type and typically uh, the age as well. So, or, or the type of character that they're playing. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't have an adult playing, you know, a ballistic type character, not at all, but obviously you cast for that specifically, and you look for those characteristics. Is there any uh, likewise with balance. I've always wanted to ask this question. It seems like a really stupid one, I'm sure. But I've wondered, like let's say uh, you had a person uh, acting, I don't know, I'm going to say gorilla now, that has a large stomach mass, you know, like a big classic mm-hmm. kind of gorilla. Is there any advantage mm-hmm. in actually having weights in the motion capture suit, I mean like literally lead weights, to cause them mm-hmm. to have a different distribution of weight on their body so that their own physical balancing is better represented? I know that an actor is an actor and does wonderful things, but I'm just wondering if you have a... Is that a sensible or stupid suggestion? Not at all. It certainly can be. Uh, Sometimes it's used just for the training effect where uh, during this character development stage, you may put weights on the actors or other constraints, not just weights, 
and have them go through and, and look at themselves as the character in the, on the screen. So they learn from that, of course, just like they're looking in this virtual mirror and they're responding to what they see and the direction they're getting from the director and or uh, choreographer, whoever it is. And so that cumulative effect starts to contribute to the evolution of this character and this performance uh, of the actor over time. And some of the feedback we've gotten from performers is that, one, they either don't need as much weight later on, or uh, they may not need any at all because they've essentially learned the character. And they've understood the constraints, and they've they've worn them long enough, and and so they they've learned this relationship between their performance and the effect on the character. So it's a little subjective, uh, but it's certainly helpful to influence at least the initial performance, if not uh, all the way through uh, the performance, you know, through rehearsal and into the shot itself. So, um, but absolutely, we we consider different constraints and, and physical influences to help their performers understand the intent for that character. Because I've always thought that the importance of the feedback, for example, on the set of Avatar, was that you could see what was going on with a virtual camera and you could judge, you know, sort of performance and stuff going on. But it's sounding like actually the feedback, the real-time feedback, is also particularly important in a rehearsal sense for the actors to see what's going on and how their performance is being translated through that retargeting. Is that correct? Yeah, especially the more the character differs from the human proportions, of course. Yeah. You know, there's not as much in some shows where it's more of a one-to-one. And in, in Avatar, there was at least an attempt to match uh, certainly not the thickness of the body, but the, the bone lengths were, were very similar to most, at least the hero characters. So they weren't as concerned. Uh, the idea in, for Avatar was t- for them to just act naturally because it was more of a photoreal type shoot. It was they weren't supposed to have "quote unquote" stylized motion. Right. So, but they certainly looked at it as a playback tool to see their character in that environment to really just get a better feel for the overall effect of their performance. But they simultaneously uh, looked at the video to watch what their face was doing, because obviously that was a critical as well. So, so it's really the culmination of, ha- of seeing the character more, and the blocking of the action simultaneously with that close-up footage of the facial performance. So I want to now, if I can, just swing to an area that obviously motion capture allows, which um, I guess Tintin is a good example of, which is this idea that you're going to have characters that are performing things that the audience doesn't mind are far-fetched because they're not, you know, meant to be sitting uh, like the robots in Real Steel in, a, in our physics. And so characters can have a chase sequence where they're leaping around and chasing after a bird and pulling off stuff that, let's face it, is great fun, just not particularly based in, uh, in a sort of strict set of physics. How do you deal with that? Because obviously the motion capture artists can't themselves be flying around the room and um, following a bird uh, running down a sort of a, a steep uh, city uh, scape, and yet you want some motion capture to be able to give the performance of the actor that's trying to do that. I mean, at some point, you know, I can act doing something and I could, as an audience member, see an actor on a stage and imagine it, but you need to go a step beyond that. You actually need to have them look like they're either floating, you know, hanging onto the feet of a, or a, a rope or whatever it is and swinging through the air. How do you deal with that bit where you get beyond what the actor can do, but still inside the zone that you want to capture? 
Yeah, so that kind of segues into this this fourth branch of our process, I guess you could say, which uh, the retargeting is is if if the retargeting three A, then then and what we call motion edit is three B. But they both happen in this package that we've developed called Nuance. And uh, so Nuance essentially is a uh, not only a retargeting system, but a, a motion editing tool that allows the artist to layer on any type of motion that they want uh, onto the performance and still preserve the integrity and the detail of the original performance. So it, it's really designed to modify anything from a subtle tweak in the toe joint, you know, if it's just a cleanup to to something like you just uh, suggested where you have to enhance the motion, whether they're jumping further, running faster, or even stylizing some type of action or emphasizing an impact or exaggerating it, that type of thing, uh, Nuance is tremendous for because it's an interactive tool that has a built-in rigging system that allows us to grab the character at any joint and manipulate it in a very intuitive way for the artist and apply these what we call delta layers on top of the base performance. And uh, the nice thing is that the artists get to see all of this interactively, and it, it's everything renders on the fly, and we can incorporate any scene build from an external renderer on the stage into Nuance, and so that we have the environment uh, as well as the character motion all in the interface, and so we can edit edit to different surfaces that didn't exist on the stage. We have additional tools in there that allow us to actually morph the motion relative to terrain so it fits naturally on an uneven surface. So it really facilitates integration of the performance on the stage into the motion of what would be either the final shot or something very close to final prior to any other final animation tweaks in the animation department. Well, if I could drill down on one shot, just so you could give me an example of that, which I think is pretty easy for everyone to understand. Imagine that you're at the, you're, I'm sure you were, some pre-production meeting, and they're saying, okay, well, uh, Tintin at this stage, of the, uh, they've gone into a, a boat, uh, the boat's capsized, they're in the water, and they're kind of climbing out in, in the water, they're climbing out of the water back up onto the upturned boat, blah, blah, blah. It's not a particularly complicated scene, but of course, you're not going to stick your motion capture guys in a water tank, nor would you sensibly do that anyway, because you couldn't capture their motion markers underwater. So how do you actually go about doing that? Do you say, mm. well, in that scene, we should just keyframe it, or do you say, look, we'll get the arms, but everything from the waist down, we'll forget about? I mean, how do you approach that? Well... No, typically we would set up a rig if they want the bobbing motion. We would, since we have the live display, we'd be out on set with the grips, and there's lots of little tricks to get the body to bob up and down. So we we would do that live and show that to the director and say, okay, what do you think of this this type of uh, timing for the bobbing? And you know, how's how's the speed? How's the amplitude of the bob? Is that does that look about right? And so have that interactive dialogue with him in the moment and let the performers do their thing once they've signed off on that. Uh, what you don't want to do is move ahead with that, adding that motion without approval because if they change their mind, that actually makes it harder for the animators after the fact. So you have to make that call at the production level to say, we are either going to uh, make this determination now or add this as a post-effect. And you can do it either way. But more often than not, if you can make the call on the day, you're going to get a better result because it feels more organic, and the performer can respond to that. And the, the little mishaps, the happy accidents when they fall and slip off the side of the boat, even though it's still bobbing up and down, you get that for free. 
during the shot. So, and if if the the bobbing effect didn't work on that shot, then uh, the director could say, you know, let's let's amp that up a little bit. It was nice, but you know, let's have a little more energy in that. Just again, just like a live action setting. And it doesn't mean you can't tweak it later, but at least gives animation something to build on, not something they have to take away or fix. And that's really what's most important when you're adding on additional effects on top of the performance like that. So how far do you take that uh, that motion and especially the sort of creatively adjusting the sort of what you call I think 3B retargeting stuff? How far do you take that before you hand it over to an effects house like a Weta or whatever? It, it varies quite a bit. Uh, for someone like Weta, who ha- also has our software, it's an easier transition because we have more options in terms of a handoff. Uh, we have other clients uh, in the game industry and film industry that want to have it as much of a, a plug-and-play or just a, a drop-in and render as possible. So they're hoping to get as near final as we possibly can. Uh, with something like Tintin, it was a, a different beast because Weta brought a lot of their staff up to our stage. And since a lot of the second unit was being shot in New Zealand, it made sense for us to just process as much as we could that was selected in that moment, get it ready for camera, have uh, get the motion to a certain level where it wasn't completely finished, but it was far enough along where you could do a rough cut and then pass on to Weta for finishing. Something like Avatar, where... Uh, Jim Cameron wanted to see more of the detail on the characters internally before sending the Weta because they had so many variables to deal deal with. He wanted to nail the action and the blocking as much as he could so that they didn't have those questions. He basically took those out of the mix and they could focus more on the effects and lighting and animation of the characters that weren't captured. So that's not to say they didn't add a lot of fine detail, especially to the fingers, and they certainly did a fantastic job on the face. But, again, it was such an enormous project that in that particular case, the more we could provide to the initial cut in terms of final motion, the better for the production. So we ended up doing more on the body motion in that particular case. Can I just loop back on a point you made earlier that I, I didn't interrupt you over, but you mentioned that as you move forward, you're doing more with lighting. I'm wondering, is that because in something like Real Estate, you wanted to know where the light was so the DP could line up, or do you mean lighting in some other sense when you, when you made that remark earlier? Yeah, well, the thing is with lighting is up until now, with the, all the real-time lights in games, they are effectively cheats to make the scene look good. And it's understandable. That's that's kind of... The, the gamers to date have basically been playing within the limitations of the render boxes they've been using and the constraints they have for game platforms. So, so they had to play by those rules. And so now uh, hardware and software are getting to a point where you can build uh, physically-based lighting rigs that hold up in real time and can also be used in a final render pipeline, which is really exciting. To have more transparency from a real-time lighting scenario to a CG final render lighting scenario to a physical set lighting scenario. We're getting close to a point where all of those can become one in terms of construct and terminology. So because of that, we're evolving more towards a common pipeline and protocol for their setups. So you can imagine the value if a director says, 
gosh, you know, especially for a drama and not a comedy where it's more evenly lit, where light, lighting plays a, a more crucial role in, with shadows and and uh, uh, saturation, etc. Uh, where it makes sense to add on a live set, we will certainly incorporate that in the future because that of course affects composition and if the goal is for to allow the director to frame a shot and hand off a render at a certain level and feel very confident about what's going to come back through the final render from visual effects uh that's really valuable information that you're providing to the scene how how much does the infrared cameras allow you to do whatever you like in the visible light without bothering the camera capture process uh you know, it's really about the physical set itself. Are it, there are there holes to actually see what you need to see if you're right. using an optical system? So it's not so much the lighting uh, issue. It, it has enough contrast itself to pull out the data that of interest. Um, the issue, issue is more of a physical one and a logistics one. Can you actually get the cameras where to the action that you need to see when you need to see it in the time you're allowed to set up those cameras for that shot. You know, can, it's a more uh, production logistics is what you run into because the set may be still in the middle of being art directed and, and, and lit with the uh, physical lighting with the DP. And so you may not have access to it until late at night and, and you have a 7 a.m. call the next day and the first shot's up at, at 8.30 or 9. So... That's more of the issue, typically, and so it's it's really in your production planning is is staying a step ahead of that as much as you can, and telling the the director and the first AD and the producers involved, this is what we would need if you want us to shoot on this set, and, and so you're working with them at the production level in that planning process. That's really the key in those situations. I mean, if I could now, I'd like to take like a slightly different tact and approach this a bit more. F- from the actor's point of view for a second. Now, and if I'm not mistaken, you have a master's degree in biomechanical engineering, I think, and, uh, and a science degree in uh, physiology and biomechanics. I'm assuming most actors don't. Um, so, <laughs> Also, obviously, you are one of the most experienced people in the world at doing this. So I'm imagining an actor's coming on set and they're going to work in a major production like this. Clearly, the director is probably casting that person based on performance, based on physical characteristics that they think that they can bring as a physical performance. But that may not include, as I say, degrees in, in, in physiology. So what do you kind of do to work with the actor just to sort of give them a mind space of how to approach this? Do you... Do you brief the actors? I mean, do you just sort of expect them to ignore the technology or do you want them to kind of understand it? Well, you know, it kind of depends. You don't want them to be intimidated by it, first of all. You know, they, it, it's a foreign thing to them, especially if they've not, never done it before, of course, right? So you're walking around in, in what's pretty much a skin-tight suit with a bunch of markers in your body and probably a head cam on your, on your face. And so, uh, you know, naturally a lot of them feel a little self-conscious, out of the gate. And so the first thing we try to do is just uh, help them relax because we've seen it a thousand times before. It's nothing new to us. We don't think you look silly in that get up, even though they may. So more, most important is we put them at ease because anything we can help them uh, do to, to give their best performance is a plus for the process. From a technical standpoint, yeah, we, we, we give them the, the overview. We have to 
put these markers here because we're, we're picking up the different motion, the body parts and this and that. And we have this thing called a ROM, which is a range of motion that you have to do every morning. But really, we make we try to make it fun, you know, because the actors, especially the comedic actors, the more we can make it into a game for them, the more into it they are. And they don't really care about the technical implications. I mean, that's the furthest thing from their mind. All they know is that they walk out on stage and, and this character turns on. So it usually doesn't uh, serve anyone to go into too much detail unless they more, are more of a technical person and are genuinely interested. Then we're happy to... Uh, kind of peel back the layers as much as they want. But uh, typically we try to keep it light and fun and, and informative to the point where they understand generally why they have to do it. But that's about where it ends for the most part. I'm wondering, um, I've, I've heard a couple of actors approaching sort of this stuff. I'm, I remember hearing uh, Dustin Hoffman talk about an effects performance it wasn't a motion capture and he was saying that he had to perform to a green screen he was like well he's you know juilliard trained his academy award winning he's never had any lessons in how to you know act to a green wall but by the same mm-hmm. token i've also heard actors talking about your process of motion capture as being once they got past the tech for them it was stage work it was it was something they were very comfortable with because obviously walking around on a on a thrust stage uh, in a you know checkoff play you don't tend to have tons of propping and stuff and so the the imagination of the mind is what kicks in. Do you do you find that actors do approach it sometimes like theatre and that helps them or is that a is that a fallacy? No, not at all. Uh, I completely agree with that and I've I've seen evidence of that absolutely. Uh, one thing that helps the actors, though, uh, is to inform them where the, the camera for a particular setup will be. Because on a stage, of course, they're playing to the crowd, the big audience, and they know where that audience is. They know the direction of it, and it affects how they deliver their line, where they look, uh, how loud they are, where, when they project, when they keep it uh, more internalized. So unlike... The film, you know, that is, which is much more subjective to the camera. So that is their audience in that medium. And if they don't know that, they may not be projecting correctly for that camera. So it is important to inform them of where the shot's being covered, in my opinion, because it, it will affect their performance. Uh, but in terms of freedom and the openness of the process, uh, I think it's a good analogy because they don't, they don't have the normal stage audience, but they don't have all of uh, the natural environment of a film set either. And they don't have the big film camera with four people standing around it to know where their focus should be or which sides they're being covered from or how the camera's moving directly relative to them. So anything that we can do to give them that general information, and it may be in a rehearsal with a virtual camera. And the thing about the virtual camera is it doesn't have to physically be where the virtual camera is going to be. Or excuse me, the physical camera doesn't have to be. So if the, ca- if the physical camera is on the other side of the stage, the virtual camera could be relatively close up and they wouldn't realize that in the moment. But what's really helpful is in the playback and talking to the director, they understand, okay, this is actually a crane move, and I have to be over here with the, the physical camera, which drives this virtual camera down 20 feet and then closer to you and ends up in a close-up. So they understand 
that dynamic and that that aspect of coverage if they see it. So you're still informing them in the moment just a little differently than you would in live action. So early on, you guys were very good at getting more than one actor on a motion capture stage. And it strikes me that that's exactly where that could be really beneficial. Because if you crane in to a super close-up on an actor's face, I mean, you are literally in normal life, in normal sets, sticking a bloody great big hunk of glass and plastic right in someone's face, quite, you know, off-putting. Mm. If two actors are having a, a serious piece of acting between each other, you can both capture that simultaneously but also allow a virtual camera right in their face without actually getting up in their face in terms of their performance. Absolutely. And, and that's really one of the huge benefits of the virtual camera. And when you watch the result of that... You don't have the feeling as a viewer that, oh, this is an artificial camera move. It, you know, it looks fake. It's animated. It feels like a real camera move. It just so happens, like you said, that physically that would have been extremely difficult and painstaking to do with a physical camera. So this virtual camera isn't just about creating moves that you couldn't do physically. It's about doing it more efficiently and allowing you to pull out these moves that would have been either too expensive or too impractical to do on a given set. So you still have that realistic movement if if you desire. And, And you're allowed and afforded that through this process. Uh, but again, it, you have that control so that in minutes you can set that up and create what would otherwise be a very complicated move. Cameron said that he thinks this is an actor-driven process, but he's also said that he thinks there's quite a learning curve for the acting community because they're not really up to speed with it yet. Maybe they're not quite comfortable with it yet. How do you find actors approaching motion capture? Do you think, as I say, if they come in cold, do you think that they are finding it intimidating? Do you think that they're curious? I mean, what's the sort of... Is there a general vibe that you get with people that you work with? Uh I think that's also very subjective. Uh, there's some, and you mentioned the stage reference, and, and a lot of the, the actors that have more stage work, uh, I think, tend to, to jump in a little bit quicker. Uh, but also it depends on the type of character they're playing. And one thing that I don't think is discussed enough is how their performance affects the character. And what I mean by that is if, if you have uh, a project that has more stylized characters, uh, and if you look at the way animation is done, you see uh, a synchronicity between the style of the character and the style of the motion. So you feel kind of an eternal match between that, 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 that they go together. And you wouldn't, just like you wouldn't want to uh, animate a photoreal character walking down a live-action street. It would be one of the most difficult things to do, and a walk cycle is one of the most difficult things to animate. You wouldn't want to use motion capture for Bugs Bunny either because there's an expectation of how a Bugs Bunny character moves. And unless you're just going to use it for blocking reference, uh, there would we all would expect to see a, a very non-human-like layer of animation on top of that in terms of how, it, how the character moved, the timing, the stretching, squashing, etc. So when you're creating a project and you're thinking about the process and the approach to use, the more stylized these characters are, the more you have to, in my opinion, define a performance that fits that style. And I think Happy Feet is a good example. And I went down there to watch the demo uh, I did. I saw a live demo of the performers playing the penguins, and 
it was amazing how close the live performance looked to the final performance of the Penguins, and what a, what an incredible job the performers were doing adapting their body performance to that character, because you had a, the mumble character who, on a relative scale, was was half less than half the size of of the adult penguin, but they were walking down an iceberg having a conversation with each other, and they were performing at the same scale. So the performer playing the mumble character was taking steps that were about six inches long. And so you'd see this very quick pace and, and counterbalance all the way from the, from the heels up you know, through the body and out, out the fingers. You'd see this reaction to this tempo and pacing and, and gait and how they would interact with the adult next to them and look four feet above them during the dialogue. And likewise, the adult would take their... Uh, steps that which were two to three times the length, but at a much slower pace, and be looking down below the person at, at their waist. But the eye lines were perfect on the screen, and I had to do a triple take basically because I just assumed initially they were operating at two different scales until I saw them go throughout the whole space through this winding path on the edge of the water at different levels of terrain because the terrain was being modified on the fly. Uh, for their performance, so they fit perfectly on the iceberg. And I realized, oh my gosh, these guys have just nailed the performances so well that you can lay out this set, this physical set, even though they're less than half the size, the one character is less than half the other, they've been able to modify the performances such that it looks believable for that scene, for those characters, uh, and it's performance-driven. So it was a, a great example of how to modify physical performance to create a believable look for the character. And I think there's a lot more that can be done in that area so that the, the motion of the character matches the style and the look of the character. Hmm. And presumably um, that really reinforces not only the validity of the actor's performance but also the importance of this process of rehearsal and and you know understanding and and being able to align yourself because it's you, they're basically interpreting themselves through a new glass and that glass is this is this retargeting repositioning stuff that's going on but it sounds like on happy feet too that they managed to conquer that and then they could just get on with their performance yeah, and really they 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 created that model on the first one. Um, so, but yes, it, it continued on to the second one for sure. So, you know, if you have a project like an Avatar where the objective is to make these characters believable in a photoreal environment, and like you said, that they play by the rules of uh, of our uh, real world physics, at least to a large extent, and we have an expectation of that motion pattern and behavior, then it's really more about that actor-director relationship and, and getting those subtle performances as they would normally act them out. But the more you stylize uh, the look of the render and, and the characters, the more you kind of get into this other area of uh, a different style of motion and this, this hybrid animation feel where, and, and I've seen plenty of examples where physical performers can watch uh, animation, very, very high-quality animation, and replicate that unbelievably closely 
if you give them that feedback. And we did a test on our stage with that one time. We showed uh, one of our best performers. She's a she's a dancer and a, a comic and a physical performer, but I showed her uh, a hero character, an animated feature, which was very stylized and keyframed. And I said, look at this and try to move like her. And after about three trials, it was jaw-dropping how close she matched to that performance in terms of uh, the acceleration and the pauses that she she introduced in between the dialogue and just the overall feel and motion pattern was much had much more of an animated feel that also I think was uh, uh, a more uh, a more uh, appropriate match for that performance and that character. It felt more natural because this was a stylized character that she was playing, as opposed to just using her normal walk cycle and her normal uh, sitting down and reaching for the cup, etc. And, and so that, that's what I'm referring to when I talk about this, this uh, synchronicity between the look of a character and our expectation with that performance that creates the overall believability of the character. Well, look, just in finishing up, um, we don't normally do a lot of coverage of games, but Giant Studios does do work in the gaming area. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about briefly your gaming stuff, maybe if there's some particular project that you uh, have done recently that you're proud of. But more, I guess my question is, does the work in the gaming area differ from the feature film area? Does one inform the other? We obviously think of gaming technology as being real-time and that feeding the technology of some of the previous and obviously uh, on-set stuff. But in terms of your work, is the capture for a, uh, a first-shooter game kind of or a whatever, is that different than the feature film work or is it uh, similar? Well, they used to be very different. And traditionally, the, the games uh, were about filling up these game engines with all, all of these little motion clips of, you know, run, walk left, walk right, shoot left, shoot right, etc. Uh, but now they are much, much more similar. In fact, we were just at a meeting with uh, a big publisher and at a pretty extensive meeting. And that was really their whole MO, was to make uh, future game development much more film-like. Uh, from, from the bottom up and, and how it's planned, the talent that they get, the sets they bring in, the camera coverage, etc. They wanted to know how their process was different from our typical film shoots, and so it's really interesting that we actually are seeing those two worlds come together now. I mean, they, we've been talking about it for years, but we are seeing it happen now. And so, uh, as a gamer and any, any fan, or even a casual uh, viewer, internet viewer, that we've all seen these clips of. of uh, of cinematics, whether it's a TV commercial or or uh, in playing the game itself, and they're getting more and more impressive every year. And so you see this evidence of the developers really putting a lot of energy into art direction, production design, story, etc. And so that naturally lends itself to this other approach because they have to make that investment. And so. Uh, we are definitely seeing more of an overlap now in the production models between films and games. And the other layer that we see with the films, of course, is that they have a game engine, ultimately, that this is going in. So now uh, there's more and more discussion of integrating that in, if not on the stage, then immediately after, so they can drop 
the shots directly into their engine and into an edit and evaluate the performance in kind of their native format at a much higher level because they've, got, they've done the groundwork to create these assets and then we're just populating the assets with this action and with the camera motion. So that's very exciting to see that evolution and the demand for that because, uh, like you just said, we're now at a point where, where one industry is going to be uh, helping the other advance the technology. And it wouldn't surprise me if the gamers really start getting more aggressive and, and actually help us develop new tools for the film industry. So Giant Studios, I, I visited the set of Avatar. I know you guys have LA set up. You came from it, or you are still based in Atlanta, aren't you? How does it? How do you operate globally? Are, well, are you, the uh, a lot of the core tech started in Atlanta, and right. so that's where I, I got my start, along with a couple of the developers. And we have. Uh, I'm actually in Atlanta right now, and we have. Uh, a relatively small production group, but we actually start um, shooting our first project here in March at the Turner stages. So we have a relationship with the Turner folks and uh, and still have the L.A. facility, of course, and are about to move into the Manhattan Beach studios in just a few weeks. So in addition to that, you know, so much of our work now, especially for films, is has gone uh, overseas, you know, to... Uh, Australia and UK and of course, New Zealand, presumably. So, New Zealand for sure. <laughs> so, yes, we are filmmaker in New Zealand, um, Peter something. He's yeah, popular. Yeah, something or other. Yeah, um, yeah. So we are racking up some some fire miles here and here and there because of all these uh, uh, production credits that uh, that other countries can offer. So you know that's the nature of the business. Um, but for us, you know, for the on-set staff in particular, and our goal is to, to be as efficient as we can and have a small footprint and get in and get out and, and finish our post, uh, whether it's Atlanta or L.A., um, it's really about kind of integrating in with that first unit and, and not changing the fundamental filmmaking process, but really just accentuating it and adding on to it. Because I'm going to go back to, I think, half of the first question I asked you today, which is I, I take nothing away from Giant, who I just think you guys have completely uh, the go-to place for this. But it just it is a little um, interesting that the biggest effects houses in the world tend to not have all of this in-house. Now, obviously, some do have it in-house. But do you think that – is this uh, – I mean, if you could characterize why that is, do you think it's related to your relationship to the directors or do you just think that it is still such a specialized area or is it just that, you know, you guys are just that damn good that no one's been able to copy you? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, one is it's, it, it is uh, specialized for sure. And uh, we, we can't, at least for our process, we can't just pluck students out of, of art school and our engineering school and throw them in. Uh, but they can get ramped up to a certain level fairly quickly. It's, it's as you would expect as you get into more of the, the sophisticated work, uh, where the learning curve gets a little steeper. But um, the other thing is the projects. You know, it, they, they, the big projects don't come along uh, every year to every the effects vendor, and so to to carry the overhead for that month in, month out, right. uh, might not make sense for them from, from a business standpoint. And it's also a difficult problem to solve, and it hasn't been completely solved. 
by us either. I mean, we, we still have a lot of problems to solve in this process and making it more production-friendly uh, and more efficient, et cetera. So uh, it, it really is a tough nut to crack. And so, you know, that, that becomes more of a, a higher-level question. Do as the VFX vendor, do you want to invest that time to reinvent this wheel yourself or bring in some experts for X number of months that have done this over and over again to help facilitate a certain part of your process? But the other part of that answer, I think, is that we end up working more now with studios uh, on the film side because uh, they're looking at proof of concept. They want answers from us as to how these different shots or this part of the movie would be done based on our experience. And so we're, we, we tend to come in at a little bit lower level now, and we're happy to work with any of the VFX vendors and deliver these scenes in a format that works for them. So, but am I hearing uh, that you're um, also involved in basically validating script concepts at studio level? Is that what you're saying? That's certainly another application now, because if you can shoot a movie at a high-level game quality, and of course that level is, is continuing to increase every few months or so, uh, you can imagine as a studio, if you're investing you know, a, a small fraction, just a few percent of what you would invest in the, uh, the real production or the, the actual movie, uh, and you can leverage a lot of these same assets, that starts to become a pretty attractive option. Hmm. So kind of a, a super previous, you mean? A super previous, yeah, it kind of depends on how far you want to take it because uh, a lot of these actions could be integrated in, again, as production assets. You're not having to reshoot them, especially if the director is involved at that level of storytelling, then, then they're already taking ownership in it. And that's where it becomes really valuable because you see the story advance as well because they have these visual elements at their disposal. The one... Uh, variable there, of course, is the talent. And if you don't have the hero talent, then that would ultimately need to be replaced, naturally. But you at least understand if it's working as a story construct and if there's certain elements that could go to stunts then or straight away to animation, then you've already made huge strides in that department. So I think studios are really uh, understanding now the value of that as a process and how it can really pay off, not just to expedite the production, but like you said, to identify whether it's flaws in the story structure or the design or continuity at this level so they're not spending the dollars when it costs 10 to 20 times per shot as, as it would through this what we call this virtual production process. Well, man, I can't thank you enough for talking with us. We've constantly been doing stories where uh, Giant has been praised and we've been wanting to talk to you for a while. It, it's been terrific to be able to have this discussion. Um, and congratulations on just what is an amazing um, bit over a decade of volume of work. It's, uh, it's terrific. Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks to Mike and Matt for that interview. I think it was really interesting and I learned a lot about mocap uh, that I didn't understand. That'll do it for this FX podcast. I'm Jeff Huser. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, we'll see you on the next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.